CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. We are joined now by a special guest to help us unpack the latest development and its significance. Joining us is Ira Lee Sorkin. He's the former attorney for Bernie Madoff and a current partner at Mints and Gold. Ira, how are you today? Good, thank you. So first of all, top, I just want a high level informed perspective on this SBF thing. You've seen some major cases play out in your day. Is there anything that is especially striking or notable about the SBF case here and now? What are your high-level thoughts? High-level thoughts, the media interest. Next question. (laughs) All right, let's do it. All right, next up. Next up, media interest. All right, so he's in jail now. He's waiting for his October uh, court date behind bars. You gave a similarly concise uh, comment to Coindesk back in December saying that Sam Bankman-Fried should, quote, just shut up already. Maybe, sorry, I, that was, I paraphrased you, but basically it was shut up. Those were the two words of advice that you provided to Sam Bankman-Fried. I don't think he took that because the judge said he was really pushing the envelope uh, with his communications with various witnesses. Is that still the piece of advice that you would share to Sam Bankman-Fried if you were his counsel now? Absolutely. I mean, there's no need, there's no need for him, once he was uh, made bail, for him to discuss the case to uh, share his thoughts about the case with anybody other than his counsel. Uh, And quite frankly, uh, the amount of documents, and I say this with the understanding that uh, Minson Gold uh, does not represent anyone in this case. We certainly don't represent Mr. Bankman-Fried. We don't represent any witnesses. We are not involved in the case. But the standard uh, conduct that uh, every defendant who makes bail is told, do not discuss the case, don't discuss it with any potential witnesses, don't discuss it certainly with the press. The only person you should talk to is your counsel. And there are ways to deal with other witnesses in the case, such as through counsel and a process called a joint defense agreement, where the lawyers can talk to one another pursuant to an agreement and it protects the attorney-client privilege, and it gives the opportunity for all counsel in the case, whether they are defendants or unindicted co-conspirators or conspirators, uh, to be able to share information amongst the lawyers. 
without their clients being present. So those are the general rules. There's nothing unusual about this particular case. But when uh, Sam Blankenfried made uh, bail, he was specifically instructed not to discuss it with anyone, discuss the case with anyone. Don't discuss it with any potential witnesses. Don't share what you uh, uh, are given in the way of the mandatory discovery that the government's required to give to all defendants. Um, and of course, we have another situation going on uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. and in uh, uh, the Southern District or the Middle District of Florida. I think it's the Southern District of Florida, where a, a rather prominent individual was given the same instruction uh, by the judge. It's standard, and that's the way it's done. If you violate the bail conditions, which uh, Mr. Blankenfried violated according to the judge, then he faces the consequences, and the consequences are jail. Uh, my understanding is that he's going to appeal it. Uh, he's got a very good lawyer representing him, uh, and they're going to appeal it. But uh, the chances of him getting out pending the trial, uh, I think, are very slim. These are decisions made by the district court judge, who happens to be a judge of many years, very well respected, very smart. And uh, the Court of Appeals is not going to question, I believe, uh, his decision because he knows the record and he knows what the bail conditions are. Thanks again for joining us this morning. I wanted to ask about the significance of being able to prepare for what's coming in October while in jail. How difficult is it? How difficult is it to talk with your lawyer or with your client during that period? Is this a huge disadvantage now going into October? It is a huge disadvantage uh, because there are, from what I've read uh, and heard, there are innumerable documents, many, 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 perhaps millions of documents uh, that the government is required to turn over to Mr. Uh, Blankenfried's uh, counsel, and having had clients who are incarcerated and not being able to make bail, it is very difficult in a paper case such as this to uh, prepare for trial. The facilities at the Metropolitan uh, uh, MBC Brooklyn uh, Center, where he's being held, um, very very difficult uh, to uh, to prepare. Uh, but this is something that uh, I have no doubt his lawyers spoke to him about, and I'm just speculating, uh, and said, if you stay out, it'll be much easier to prepare for trial. If you're incarcerated, it's very difficult. Uh, the facilities are uh, bad. The, um, uh, there is privacy, uh, but uh, to load in all the documents and all the information that the government is required to turn over to his lawyers is going to make it very difficult for him to prepare. But it's done. There are a number of people who don't make bail, but it's done. It just makes it a lot more difficult to prepare. I want to talk about these diary entries. They feel like the straw that broke the camel's back here. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's attorneys say that he wasn't trying to tamper with witnesses, that he they confirmed he did leak a few pages of the diary to the New York Times. Could this come come back? Could it be brought up again once this does go to trail in October? And how might it affect his case? It, it won't affect it at all. The fact that he disclosed information to the Times or to any media, let's make it general media, it's not going to affect the trial at all. It affected his bail, obviously, but it's not going to affect the trial. Uh, what he turned over, we don't know. Uh, I don't know whether the Times, public, Times has published it or intends to publish it. Uh, but there are 
First Amendment and the freedom of press issues uh, involved in that. And uh, I'm old enough to remember um, the uh, Pentagon Papers case and uh, Daniel Ellsberg, and uh, that didn't stop uh, the disclosure of information that, that came to the press, but it didn't affect the trial and it won't affect the trial here either. I have a question for you. Uh, myself and a lot of other people are speculating that Sam will be given special treatment because he comes from a family with a lot of influence and money. Do you th think that that is something that we will see play out, that he will be segregated away from the other inmates and he will receive special treatment while incarcerated? The, the short answer is no. He may be segregated. Often um, defendants who are uh, have some notoriety are separated but the short answer is no. I don't believe he's going to get any special treatment in jail. Jail is not a very nice place, particularly the uh, Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan, which is closed, and the Brooklyn Correctional, Correctional Center, uh, which is uh, uh, open. And uh, he, he will not be given any special privileges. And certainly the uh, facilities do not consider uh, the success or wealth of the family or those who put up bail question for you so you worked clearly with uh, the bernie madoff case and that was the, you know the last major alleged fraud to have captured headlines of this magnitude based on your understanding of the sam bankman fried the ftx alameda case do you think that this is also a ponzi scheme or do you, do you see key differences I, I don't really know i mean i don't know the case I only know what I've read in uh, the press. It appears that uh, from what the press said or what the indictment says, that money was taken out and used for purposes other than what was told to the investors. Uh, but that's not unusual in Ponzi schemes. It's not unusual in stock fraud schemes. It's not unusual uh, in um, uh, mail fraud and the like. Uh, the crimes for which he's been charged, conspiracy as well, or when you boil it all down, it's uh, pretty run-of-the-mill in terms of what it's alleged that he engaged in. Uh, the magnitude in terms of the dollars, of course, and the amount of money alleged uh, makes it a bigger case. And of course, because it's crypto, uh, that's uh, of greater interest to the public. But certainly, the statues for which he was indicted, they are standard stuff in most white collar crimes. I want to go back to the money, which you just referred to there. This has been a very expensive case, not only looking at like the chapter 11 restructuring with the FTX estate right now, but also from the SBF side of things. When you're looking at the past cases you've worked on or you've looked at the information you've seen in the press so far to date, how do you, much do you think this cost, like the cost is for SBF and his team? And what do you expect this to run going into the future? It's a very, very expensive defense. The amount of discovery, uh, the bankruptcy issue, of course, throws another issue into the case. In terms of legal fees and experts, it's going to be a very, very expensive uh, defense. You got a ballpark, you got a back of the uh, back of the envelope estimation, if you had to guess? Uh, if I had to guess, I certainly think it will run into several millions of dollars at a, at a minimum. Safe bet. Safe bet. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We really appreciate your insights on, again, what uh, a lot of people are watching in the SPF case. So thank you so much. And that was Ira Lee Sorkin, currently a partner at law firm Mints and Gold. Tuesday's top story. 
All right. So it seems on this beautiful Taco Tuesday that Europe is far more advanced than America. And this makes sense. Europe's first spot Bitcoin ETF lists in Amsterdam. London-based Jacobi, I almost butchered that. I almost did. Asset management listed Europe's first Bitcoin spot ETF on Euronext Amsterdam. Euronext is a pan-entrepreneurial platform that provides trading post-trade services for a range of financial instruments. And the ETF is regulated by Guernsey, oof, Financial Services Commission. The ticker is Bcoin, which I'm sure we have some altcoins somewhere named that. Um, and the custody is for the fund is provided by Fidelity, which is a very interesting choice. And I feel like that is the big piece of the story here. And the trading firm Flow Traders is the market maker. The ETF was first approved almost two years ago, but pushed back its plans due to market conditions and situations like the collapse of Terra and FTX. But I don't think the collapse of Terra and FTX happened until a year ago. So I wonder why it took them so long to launch. We were in the midst of a bull run. Um, Jen, I'm going to toss this to you for fun. Sure. And don't worry, I butchered the name this morning, so that so you were able to correct it for me. Um, so I wanted to say the they got approval in 2021, and when they got that approval, they said they planned to list it in 2022, and then we had all of the events of 2022 that pushed to um, the launch this year, or so the story goes. The interesting part of this ETF for me is that there's this decarbonized digital asset fund. That goes along with it. This is compliant with Article 8 of the European Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. I'm not in Europe, so I have no idea what that means. But I think that's really interesting, right? We have this ETF that's launching in Europe. It's the first one in Europe. And they're taking this like ESG narrative very much to heart. It feels almost like a blast from the past, but they're introducing it in a new way. So I am not going to try and describe what's going on. I will completely uh, butcher it. But apparently this new offering is different from carbon offsets. Uh, the CEO said whilst offsets can be used for any aspect of a company's carbon footprint, this one is particularly focused on electricity consumption. So that kind of goes hand in hand with Bitcoin. With that information, I want to pass it to you, Will, and ask you what you think about this environmental aspect of the ETF. Do you think we're going to see more ETFs offer this? Could it appease regulators and get more institutional investors interested? Yeah, I think it does do that, right? Because everyone wants to purchase Bitcoin, but there's a stigma associated with it. And most people are just not interested in like delving into it, right? Like they read headlines or like Bitcoin has this environmental problem. And that's as far as they're going to go into it. But they still want the exposure to Bitcoin. So here's a nice handoff, right? Like I can buy Bitcoin, I can get exposure to it. And I don't have to feel bad about it because there's some sort of like carbon scheme associated with it. I think you're going to see that more and more with these ETF products. Like this is the first one in Europe to be launched. We're going to see them in the US hopefully this year. And a lot of them do have some sort of like carbon scheme uh, associated with them. There's been a lot of Bitcoin mining ones. There's been a lot of stuff with Bitcoin mining where they've added some sort of carbon scheme as well to be able to offset things. So in the event that an investor does purchase something, they don't feel too bad about purchasing. Uh, I think to Zach's point, we've talked about this on the show over the last two years. This is something that's just going to trail Bitcoin no matter what. Like it's always just going to be there. Zach, I think there's like also a fine distinction here around like ETPs, ETFs, ETNs, because like Europe has a lot of crypto ETPs, and I think that ETFs are a subset of ETPs. So I feel like some of this dis is like distinction without significant meaning, right? Like a lot of these European markets, especially in Switzerland, have listed a lot of these ETPs over the last three, four, five years, right? Like even fairly obscure ones, right? Like a, like a Polkadot ETP or a Cardano ETP, right? 
So I think the European market, to Wendy's original point, is far more advanced as it relates to ETPs related to crypto assets than the US market. And I think it, it always strikes me as so odd that, you know, seemingly well intentioned smart people in the regulatory class on opposite sides of the Atlantic can come to wildly different conclusions about whether or not they should support these products for their markets, right? So I think, again, like the background here, of course, is this wave of spot Bitcoin ETF applications in the US that are still languishing in like bureaucratic purgatory, right? And have been for years. Where in Europe, we see, again, further momentum, whether it's ETP, ETF, ETN, again, that distinction, those distinctions are a bit lost on me because I'm not a financial professional or planner. But you know th- that is the subtext, right? Europe moving ahead, US languishing behind. And I think that is very much the story that's animating a lot of these, you know, more Wall Street friendly Bitcoin plays is like, okay, can we like advance the conversation? We've been having the same thing over and over again, where the SEC just gets out the big like rejected stamp uh, after dragging the process on for months and months and months. So I don't know. I'm just hoping that sometimes uh, at some point this will break. But so far, the SEC has held strong despite our insistence that they maybe reconsider things. But I got to toss to Wendy for her last thoughts on this one for sure. Really quickly, why are we associating digital assets with climate change? I feel like there's other factors and other um, ways that humans consume that are a lot more detrimental um, to the climate than a digital asset. I think it's just the mining part, right? It's so energy intensive. There's no really way of getting around that. So I think that stigma will always be there. And you can financially engineer your way around it. Sometimes it works. It works for some investors. But for the most part, like that stigma will always be there because there's an energy component for Bitcoin. You killed Wendy, Will. You know what, old man? Will is going to be the man in front of his house, yelling into the abyss, watering the yard. Like like these below zero temperature, just yelling into the abyss. Get off my yard when there's nobody there and he's in the middle of nowhere in um, some remote area. Maybe in the desert. I don't know. That will be Will. Why are you watering the desert? We'll tell. <laughs> That's just how much you lost it, Will. You just be watering the dry, dry <laughs> desert. Okay. Okay. Before we move on to the next story, I believe that all those TradFi ETFs that are on that beautiful graphic that our control room was just showing are up for a decision in September. But many, many people think that we're going to see another delay. So we will wait and see what happens in September with those ETFs. Wednesday's top story. It wouldn't be an episode of The Hash if we didn't talk about the upcoming Sam Bankman-Fried criminal trial. Prosecutors in that trial are now saying that they plan to use personal notes and diary entries written by Caroline Ellison. Of course, she's the former CEO of Alameda Research as evidence against the disgraced FTX founder in a filing. We learned that Ellison took notes at meetings about the financial health of Alameda and separately created a list titled, quote, things Sam is freaking out about, unquote, that summarized SBF concerns. Zach, throwing it off to you. This is going to be a trial just full of drama and tidbits that we probably couldn't have even have guessed that would have ended up there. You can't make this stuff up, you know, in, a, in an organization in which all of the messages disappeared through various chat apps. The one stuff that has not disappeared is the diary from former Alameda Research co-CEO Caroline Ellison, who is also reportedly SBF's one-time girlfriend. This is just crazy that we're going to have to watch this unfold. 
through these logs of someone who's very much implicated in the practices that lost these entities a whole lot of money. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what um, you know whether or not this is seen as a reliable narrator, whether or not this is uh, something that um, you know you can build a case around, or whether this is someone who is similarly conflicted, similarly in trouble with the things that uh, led to the sudden and shocking demise of FTX and Alameda both. So uh, it's just the, the twists and turns. I'm just going to sigh, sigh. It's just crazy. We're going to new twists and turn. Big sigh, big sigh on this one. But uh, yeah, also like. Maybe it sheds light on why SBF felt compelled to leak the diary uh, ahead of time also. Maybe think about that as well. But uh, I don't know. Will, what do you think? Yeah, I want to go to one of the diary entries that's included in this decrypt article. They say that on November 9th, there's an all-hands meeting that Ellison recorded in her diary talking about FTX and Alameda having a liquidity shortfall. This was two days before both those entities filed for bankruptcy. And she said that this was like recorded in her diary. Uh, that there was a bunch of money via open term loans and used to make various illiquid investments. Those loans went bad during 2022. And now the money was owed between Alameda and FTX. So she's sort of detailing like the huge problem here. And it goes on to say that these whole uh, loans were filled by loans from users, right? So they basically admit to the whole problem here that's alleged in the criminal trial going forward. And then she goes on to say later that whose fault is this? An employee asked her and she said, uh, Sam, I guess. So I think that kind of details like pretty clearly like what's going to happen here is like, they're going to use this basically as a hammer. They have firsthand evidence from the co-CEO of Alameda of why this happened and how it happened. I'm sure there's more juicy details in this. And there's like that New York Times piece also about the diary that came out. That will speak to this a lot, uh, like the weird relationship between Ellison and SBF. Uh, but I think just in terms of like, the core critical issue here for people who lost a lot of money, um, they're loaning mo- money out because they basically went to the bet farm on shit coins. And that's what happens when you don't protect the piggy bank. Wendy? I just think that it's interesting that the list is called things Sam is freaking out about. That's my favorite part. And the reason why is, is I have ADHD and that would probably be something I would call a list is things Windio is freaking out about or things that are making me uncomfortable. So I think it's absolutely funny. The whole thing is very sad, though. I mean, of course, like fraud isn't good and people that do bad things, they're awful. But at the same time, I just try to find light in every single situation. And the fact that there's a list in court that's going to be called things Sam is freaking out about. Um, and then they're going to be using a diary. So may, you know what, guys? Don't be using diaries anymore. You can't use diaries anymore. You're not safe. This is not the 1800s. It's not the 1700s. You're, gonna have to use dis- you're just going to have to use disappearing messages. That's not legal advice. I'm not your attorney and I'm not a legal expert. No more diaries. Uh, you got to get a lock on your diary and not, not write it in Google Documents. You got to yep. act like it's the 1700s. Just... Pen to paper, lock it up, put it under your bed. Floorboards, uh, floorboard, floorboard in a nineteen or an eighteen hundreds Victorian mansion. Floorboard, please. One day someone will find it and they'll be in for a treat. Uh, for people who are wondering, is this hearsay? The prosecution says that the notes were taken to memorialize information supplied to her and to provide a reference to help carry out her role in the conspiracy. I think that's kind of um, interesting, and I want to get in. Uh, Sam's lawyer's response here. They are moving to exclude the evidence, any evidence gathered after July 1st. They say that the prosecutors failed to provide specific information in a timely manner 
uh, substantially hindering SBF's ability to prepare for his defense. I find that kind of hilarious because he has hindered his ability to prepare for his defense by talking so much. And so he's in jail now. And that's that deck. Wait, 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 wait. It was, is the diary in Google Docs or is, I was just picturing like a diary this whole time. Was it a digital diary or was it actually like a real diary? What he leaked to the New York Times, my understanding, it was Google Docs. Okay. All right. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to update my mental, my mental model for, uh, for what's been <laughs> for diaries. changing hands. Also, like, why is it called a diary and not just like a journal? Like, is, it, is this a gendered thing? Is this like a schedule, like diary in the sense of like schedule? Like, I, why is it called the diary? Like that whole thing, I think is, that's strange to me. I don't know, Wendy. It's just strange to me. I just want to say I watched this really funny TikTok from this real attorney and um, she says, I'm not your attorney, but the best thing you can do in life is just shut up, just shut up. And that was a TikTok. That was like what our guy, uh, our guy, our Bernie Madoff guy said the other day. She was like, just shut up already. (laughs) And the moment you walk outside of your house, you're in public domain. So and and she also said there's always people watching you. It's true. Mm -hmm. Thursday's top story. All right. The SHIB token plunged 9% on apparent Shibarium bridge issues, marking a turbulent launch of the Shibarium network. Blockchain data shows that transactions on the network were stalled for at least five hours. One of the Shibarium developers responded to reports of an outage in a blog post saying there is no bridge issue and that the problem occurred following a mass influx of transactions. So Shibarium, this layer two, Launched yesterday, there were lots of dog balloons and pool floaties at ETH Toronto for this announcement. Dogs everywhere. And now we have the token plunging because of these apparent bridge issues. Will, tossing it off to you. Or Zach, sounds like you have something to say. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make of this? I don't know. Are, are the ship people really in it for the tech? Is this really causality? What, yes. like, what, what is this? Is this real? Like the whole point of a meme coin is just, just trading it, you know, just trading it, just doing whatever with it. It's not about the bridging or the L. I don't get it. I don't get it. I, I, I question whether or not this stuff is as causally linked uh, as this headline would suggest, but I don't, I don't know. Will, what do you, what do you have to say, Will? I don't, I don't know what to say. Okay, I'm pretty sure this is the correct take, but I do want to leave a big asterisk there in case it was the wrong take. I think like this whole bridging thing really comes down to like multi-sigs because no one has really figured out bridges yet. Like even the most leading Ethereum teams out there are working on L2s for roll up. So like the Optimism team all the way down to like Arbitrum, stuff like that. They haven't quite figured out a lot of these bridging things yet. And they're mostly multi-sigs and they're mostly run by the developer teams or the core teams at these foundations. And I have no expectation that it'd be any different for Shiba Inu which is a meme coin and therefore probably not hiring the best tech help out there. Like if the best of the best L2 teams can't quite figure out how to decentralize the bridging networks, which these things essentially are, then we can't say that this is either. All right. So let's go back to a different story last year with the wormhole hack, which happened when Jump Crypto, which is running this bridge between two networks, was hacked. Why did that happen? Well, at the end of the day, it's also multi-sig. Uh, you're able to put funds on this bridge. And that those funds are supposed to go to the other part of the bridge. But the gatekeepers on either side are just people with private keys holding them, bringing in transactions, releasing those transactions to the other side. It's a highly manual process. At the end of the day, like there's a lot of human error there, right? Like no one has quite figured out bridging yet. I think that's where you go with the Shiba Inu thing here, where 
they're trying to get these tokens over the other side. But it's not as seamless as you might expect when you're just sending like Ethereum on top of Ethereum or you're sending Bitcoin on top of Bitcoin. That's really simple because it's just the network doing its thing. But when you add like this human element of like, I need to start the lights and I need to turn off the lights and get the tokens over whenever I can, that's where you get like these transaction problems where the volume's not moving as fast as people expect. So I think this is just about the tech here. I don't think it has anything to do with like the network having any major issues. Just like that's where bridging is at. But people don't think of it that way, right? People think of it as like, this should be very quick as all things are in crypto. And I think that's why you see like things react in pricing because people have expectations that network is going to function some way. But in reality, it doesn't function that way because the technology isn't there yet. And people's expectations are misaligned. And then the price starts collapsing. So that's what I read from this story. Jen? Why do we keep having these expectations? It feels like deja vu. Big expectations and then a launch that maybe does, doesn't meet up to all of the um, excitement that happens during the testnet phase. I am most curious to see if this project successfully goes from just like random meme token to actual serious project where developers are building real things and users are actually doing things. Of course, they launched this like metaverse and layer two and they said that 21 million wallets were created in the testnet phase. I'm just curious to see if they can actually get something going, maintain momentum, and then in the next bull cycle, I'm just curious to see like which layer two makes it. It feels like you know, feels like maybe some of these layer twos that are popping up now may not be around um, in the long term. Zach, what do you think? I mean, they're saying all the right things, but I'm pessimistic. I think they're saying the right things, like, oh, we're layer two, it's layer two season, we're layer two, we're metaverse, we got metaverse, let's say some stuff, we're here for the long haul, there's real utility. I don't know, I've seen this, I feel like I've seen this rodeo before, and I guess I'm I'm less willing to credulously believe. I'm jaded, I'm jaded, guys. So, you know, Shiba will do what Shiba does, and that's fine. Meme coins are fine, they don't have to have this elaborate roadmap but i don't know it just feels like sort of opportunistic positioning relative to the other things going on in the market but i just don't know will i don't know what to say about the shibas i think it's fair but like are we really expecting this to be like the bedrock of innovation for crypto like no like meme coins are meme coins and that's fine great that's what they are i mean like elon did say that he wanted to put money to dogecoin he wanted dogecoin to be like move a transaction do you want 10,000 transactions per second they were going to innovate on the layer one side of things he had a lot of tweets in 2020 and 2021 about this but then like he got distracted and moved on to twitter and like other projects <laughs> i think they're still working on dogecoin itself but I, I sort of see dogecoin development and shiba inu development the same way right it's like they're just going to copy and paste any other developers out there but probably with like not as great tech and not as great like principles as some of these other foundations out there so at the end of the day, it's just like, it's copy and paste and marketing. That's okay. Like you're buying a dog token. I think most people are walking to this with their eyes wide open. It's not super surprising. It's just what it You'd is. You'd be surprised, Jen. Will. You know, it'd be a good turn of, <laughs> a fun turn of events here. Uh, you know, Elon also, he doesn't only tweet about Doge. He has tweeted about SHIB before. It would be great if Elon was one of the anonymous developers behind this project or one of the anonymous founders. I think that would be a great turn of events. Of course, I have no clue, but that would be the perfect cherry on top of this cake it really would be you've been listening to the hash headlines on the coindesk podcast network we would like to hear from you if you have any questions or comments please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line the hash or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player thanks for listening 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.